0: Green Lens and you're listening to Infra Intelligence a podcast from Renew Canada Magazine. In today's episode, technology is transforming the way that Canadians do business. While the pace of change has accelerated and can be daunting, technology is making it easier for municipalities, engineers and constructors to design, build, operate and maintain the infrastructure assets we need for a robust economy. In this episode, we'll explore the use of technology in construction and public works where it's being adopted, and perhaps more importantly, where it's not and where it should be. Todd Latham, owner and founder of Actual Media and Renew Canada leads this future forward discussion where we gather experts in construction technology application and hear about projects that are moving forward in the digital age.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Renew Canada's Infra Intelligence Series. Thanks for joining us today. And today, as I mentioned, we're going to go all digital with a discussion about how our industry is or isn't adopting technology to build better, faster, and more efficiently. But before I introduce our panelists today, I'd just like you all to consider that everything used in construction and infrastructure comes from our earth, air, and water. So let's take a minute to acknowledge the many First Nations and Indigenous peoples of Canada as the original stewards of this great country and the resources we use and enjoy. I'm in Toronto, which is in the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Ashinabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. Okay, so now we're going to get started. First joining me right now is Ahmed Badrudin. He's the CEO of CityLytics. And next up on screen will be Anna Roback. She's the Director of Research and Innovation with WSP Canada. Welcome Ahmed and Anna. And third panelist today is Richard Lyle. He's the president of RESCON and he's on the Ontario Construction Advisory Panel. Good to see you there, Richard. And our final panelist today, John Rebel. He's the Chief Building Official with the City of Windsor. So thank you everybody for joining us. us get started here. Um, why don't I go around in order of everybody introduction and you can just say a couple words about uh, who you are, what you do, and your relevance to the topic of digital age of construction. Start with you, Amit.
2: Thanks you, Todd. Uh, great to be here. Um, I'm CEO of CityLytics. We're essentially a data company. We specialize in predictive intelligence of North American infrastructure markets. Essentially, work with business leaders in the infrastructure space and looking to do business development in a much more data-driven and more proactive way. Our technology scans over 31,000 cities and utilities across North America for any data they're publishing, from council minutes to budgets, capital plans, compliant databases. Essentially, we triangulate all that data to look for early-stage intelligence of infrastructure needs, issues, opportunities, and uh, using proprietary software tools and expert analysts. And uh, our customers are typically the largest uh, solution providers in the infrastructure space. Thanks, Alan. Anna?
3: Uh, Thanks, Todd. I am from WSP Canada. We have about 7,000 staff across Canada and 50,000 globally. So we're a a little little company who does an awful lot of design and advice and stuff around the periphery of construction. While we don't do it directly, there's certainly a lot of the smart side that we're into. And we recently did some research into what are some of the smart solutions for construction in particular, and what are some of the barriers to adopting? So it aligns really well with this topic.
1: Excellent. Looking forward to diving into that a little bit more. Uh, Richard.
4: Yeah. Hi, Uh, Richard Lyle. I'm the president of Rescon, which is a builder developer council based in Ontario. Uh, We're basically involved in anything that has to do with uh, building buildings. Um, uh, digitization has uh, been a long interest of ours. We've uh, got a partnership with U of T engineering, where we've done uh, and commissioned quite a bit of research and other things related to streamlining the process uh, overall, the building and the uh, 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 development permits approvals process. Uh, we have uh, released a number of reports on that. We're one of the principles behind an initiative called one Ontario, uh, which concerns uh, uh, largely e permany but it's actually more than that. And a big uh, starting point for that, where we're uh, in the midst of uh, discussions with uh, Treasury Board in Ontario and the Ministry of Housing, is uh, setting up a data exchange platform. So different entities, municipalities, organizations that, uh, relative to applicable laws, can all plug into. Uh, the system ensure data. So we've been hard at work on this. Uh, got lots to say, probably not enough time, but uh, good to be here. <laughs> well, we'll definitely get into that some more. Uh, John. Uh, good morning. And thank you very much,
5: Todd. Uh, so my name is John Ravel. I'm the CBO of uh, the city of Windsor, chief building official. So I've been the CBO since 2014. Uh, Windsor is uh, Ninth largest municipality in uh, Ontario. We have a little over two hundred eighteen thousand uh, population, uh, being one of the gateway communities uh, from the United States with the Ambassador Bridge and soon to be Gordie Howe Bridge. Uh, we've got a lot of construction happening, and our entire region is roughly half a million people. So it's a fairly, fairly urban area uh, with some rural rural around us. So it uh, it's interesting. We have uh, within the city we have 360 million dollars uh, annually in construction. So we're roughly issuing 4,000 permits, uh, and we undertook a project to move from paper to paperless a couple of years ago, and we're we're continuing that process. So I'll be glad to participate here and talk about it a
1: little more, Todd. Thank you. Well, that's that's a great segue, because that's one of the questions I was going to ask is uh, let's talk about permitting and approvals. Um, You uh, I think in our early conversations before we got set up for today, uh, it was mentioned that uh, City of Windsor was one of the first adopters of the eVolta cloud permitting system. So can you tell us a little bit about how cloud permitting works and how it works for municipalities and engineers and consultants?
5: Uh, Sure. Yeah. So just to give you a little bit of history, uh, Evolta was a Finnish company, and they had, uh, they had created this electronic system for issuing permits, uh, doing inspection, uh, sort of the whole gamut of the construction process in Finland, um, and it had worked really well. Uh, the Finnish government had encouraged this. They had brought together a number of players uh, in, and helped create, uh, create the platform. So when we started thinking about going digital and started to look around, what we found was that there was a number of different options. Uh, a lot of them were project management type systems that had been prepared uh, and were being reused as pressuring uh, as permits and doing other things. So there was sort of a, a static base that were being recrafted. The Evolta system was a little bit different in, it was a customized uh, product that was specifically for the construction industry. So we we really liked what we saw with that. And we thought that it might be a good opportunity to, uh, to take us to the next level, take us electronic. And so we started a partnership with the Evolta. Volta has now moved to Canada. They've set up a, a headquarters here in Toronto and they've relabeled themselves as cloud permit. Uh, But basically as the first community in, uh, we've been working with them to help create the system. So it's a completely new system. that has been brought to Canada and it's it's tailored to the Ontario um, construction process. So there's, there's a big Delta between what Finland has versus Ontario. In Ontario, we're more bottom-up, so we have a lot of different players that we're trying to bring together, uh, different consulting uh, agencies, so conservation authorities, uh, ministries, that all need to come together and and approve a construction or development project. It's much more streamlined in Finland. It's much more top-down, and the building department takes the lead, even in terms of uh, planning process zoning. So Ontario was a little bit different. So that's why we had to sort of start from scratch and create a brand new system. Uh, and that's still in process. It's uh, it, it's very near completion as uh, a lot of communities are starting to use it. Uh, in Ontario, uh, we're putting some finishing touches on adding more, more functionality to it. Uh, in Missouri, it's slowly going live with that cloud permit. Uh, prior to that, we had developed an in-house solution that was just basically a web-based application process. So the cloud permit is for us the next step. Something that's great for our customers. It's what the, uh, the industry wanted. Uh, they'll be able to make payments. Uh, we include other commenting agencies, uh, chat back and forth, do inspections, record everything, store drawings. So it's, it's sort of one universal cloud-based format uh, that anybody can access when you the appropriate credentials and login uh, is secure, and it's uh, much more intuitive, uh, provides feedback, and, and the communication tool is really, really going to be a great thing for, for our industry.
1: I think we're seeing a lot. You know, obviously with the pandemic, everybody's doing Zoom calls and webinars like these. But I think you're also seeing people move to more electronic means of uh, of communicating and and organizing their projects. Um, and data is a big part of that. So, um, you know, well, Richard, I want to get to you and, and Anna on how you're doing permitting from your perspective um, and how tools you, you're using. But let's talk about the data that goes into that first. So, so John, you've got you know, electronic permitting and, and you've got all these resources that you're trying to get together for a collaborative sign-off on these projects. Uh, I'm going to ask Ahmed to talk about what, what data goes into that, do you think? And and how, you know, how are successful organizations and firms using data? Can you that's to put these two pieces together?
2: Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, I think that trend of more digitization and data availability is skyrocketing in general public sector because now we've got to provide these services uh, in a and uh, all have alternative ways to do it in much more uh, lower human touch ways, and that's that's uh, driving some of the digitization as well. Uh, our focus on around that data piece of it is, uh, for example, we aggregate data from permit databases across the U.S. that we're looking for early stage intelligence around what what trends can we see more market wide. That's uh, that's uh, our focus, and so I'd say to your question around companies that are using it and how they're using it generally it starts with a clear goal like what they want to do with the data and a clear understanding of what kind of data they need Uh, because sometimes you can have a business goal but then they may not need data to support it or you might have data that doesn't align with the ultimate business goal so you kind of have to attack it at both angles and then look at what implication it has on workflows and processes adoption how you you get it adopted as well because there's a lot of uh, behavior change as well Typically, the most successful way is to start small, start with one area where you can have some defined need, defined scope, get some successes, and then start scaling it, uh, it further.
1: Okay. So, so back to you, Richard, uh, and I'll get to you too, is Anna, like from a construction industry perspective, how, is, how are you seeing data being used and, you know, electronic cloud-based systems uh, being applied in, in projects?
4: Well, you know, it varies by company and by jurisdiction, of course, Uh, you know, I applaud Windsor for being at the cutting edge of this because it's a very difficult challenge to undertake when we were looking at different systems globally. uh, We also pay particular attention to the actual transition to uh, a database platform for this kind of work. Uh, For example, you know, Singapore, which has been a leader in this area you know, when they when they hit the switch, they realized that industry wasn't up to snuff too. So they had to set up consulting services to uh, assist industry with uh, learning how to use these tools. But they are fantastic tools and it can be done. And we know that when we look at uh, uh, the Ontario Canadian experience, you know, we know, for example, that, you know, we still don't have a, a BIM mandate in Canada. We know that The World Bank ranks us at 64th in construction permitting in the world. And we know that when you look at housing and infrastructure projects from a supply chain perspective, if you look at the preponderance of uh, governmental bodies and agencies, you know, often subject to applicable laws, of course, that are involved there, you know, we counted up to 45. So if that process isn't working smoothly, then you lose time. And if you lose time, you lose money. And uh, so, you know, a very important part of this whole exercise is really de risking the development process, which uh, which is critical, especially from, uh, with respect to any private sector based investment. You know, you need to know when you're going to get done, when you're going to get approved, and, and what the numbers look like. And the harder it is to measure those things, the higher the risk is going to be for any proponent or any investor in a project. So for example, we believe and have believed for some time that systemically a big part of the housing supply problem is the lack of predictability and accountability in, in the process.
1: Yeah, so I mean, we don't wanna get into a political conversation no, here. No,
4: no. But... <laughs> I, no, no, I didn't mean that to be political, but we're actually looking at this as being sort of helpful. I mean, we live in a, in a data world we know that there are tools uh, that are available to us. We know that there are uh, jurisdictions that are more advanced than we are. We know this can work. Uh, we just need to get to it as quickly as we can, and uh, and that's getting organized. And, of course, it's very complicated. There's nothing more complicated, really, than when you talk about the building and development industry with, with respect to approval. So there's a lot of moving parts here and a lot of different players and you have to bring them together. But that's why that one Ontario initiative is so good, because we've got over 20 uh, organizations and entities, including the planners, the building officials, the builders and whatever. We're all saying, hey, we want to do this. This is going to make things better. We need to have that data exchange capability for that interoperability between systems and between the relative differences in uh uh, different jurisdictions, different municipalities, how sophisticated they are and that kind of thing. So we can actually plug in and share the data. That's, that's step number one. There's lots of uh, service providers out there and, and, and uh, you know, Cloud Permit being a great example. Um, you know, We wrote a, a dumb blog, a silly blog out of our office and a week later we were contacted by this group from Finland. And a week after that, they were in Ontario And a week after that, we had a meeting with the secretary to cabinet. That's how quickly things can move. But when you get into how people work and changing how they work and utilizing data and systems and so on, that takes longer, of course. And there's a lot of fear and things in there. But anyways...
1: So, so that's where human nature comes in—just the the fear of change and the change management process. So, so Anna, over to you on uh, on the innovation piece. You're, you're director of research and innovation at WSP, and obviously, you're seeing a lot of these technology trends. Um, how how are you seeing them being actually adopted on projects? Or not? Yeah, yes. or
3: not. Um, so it's. It is really interesting because we have the opportunity to see both how things are being done within construction, but also our own staff taking on technology or not taking on technology. So we have, as part of our innovation program, we have a piece called Production Through Technology, which is all about just our own staff getting to know the full potential of the tools we already have, and then starting to use machine learning and AI, you know, starting to, to streamline processes. So it's quite a journey and you know part of it is how do we get industry to adopt but part of it is also internally how do we get our own people to adopt these things and that's I'm not just saying that about WSP that's everyone it's always a challenge so maybe I'll take a step back and explain the research that we did because that brings a little bit more context to what I'm about to say um, we the research was a marriage of our smart and future ready programs so future ready is about looking at trends which are looking not like a current trend but what's going to happen 10, 20, 30 years from now in terms of technology, but also climate, resources, and society. So in this research piece, we were looking at what are the costs to Canada over the next 10 years, just the next 10 years in those four trend categories. Um, And then what are some of the smart solutions that we have available to us to help us predict, prepare for, uh, design against all of those things. Um, And then the big interesting one for me was well, what what are our barriers to this? Because I know from my background in asset management, and frankly, anyone who works with people uh, knows that there are going to be barriers to implementing new technology and, and new solutions. And so. What we found in this research, first of all, all of these trends are gonna cause an increase in not only the number of construction projects taking place, but also the cost of construction, which probably doesn't come as a huge surprise, Uh, but you can also imagine within that, there's the opportunity for smart solutions to to, kind of work against that, that massive increase. And I'll just explain what I mean by both those dimensions of increasing the number of projects Uh, With an aging population that there's one of our society pieces, we're going to need to construct, build things that are more age friendly for a range of ages Uh, with increasing heat and flooding. Our infrastructure is going to fail faster, fail sooner. Therefore, we're going to have to replace it sooner. So you can start to see how that's going to add up to more construction is going to be happening. And then in terms of the cost of each construction project, I'll again just point to the aging population, uh, because not only are people aging out and we have to train the next generation, but we also people are going to be looking after their aging parents. So you can start to see how this is all compounding. Uh, I'll do the final trend thing, even though we had about 12 of them, which is around heat. Um, this is going to have a massive impact on our construction industry because we it's going to I think it's around 3.6 billion a year, that it's going to start costing um, our economy just to deal with worker productivity related to heat. So uh, you can start to see this all kind of coming together into a massive, uh, I won't call it, call it quite a train wreck opportunity uh, to bring in more smart solutions. Um, I think I'll leave it at that because I suspect that the group has a lot of things amongst them where they they can raise some really interesting smart solutions related to that. But the final piece that I'll say is when we went out to industry and interviewed people on what do you think the solutions are to these? Of course, there's plenty of barriers and we can all talk about those, I'm sure. But the two main solutions people raised were that individuals have to do something about this. They've never seen anything big go through without a strong champion. And government has to do something about this because without regulation, legislation, um, you know, we just don't have the right incentives in place to bring forward the smartest solutions and, and connected and collaborative solutions that we can.
1: So, I mean, that's, those are great points. I mean, we're really trying to get to information-based decision-making, right? So, um, I'm I'm fascinated about the heat comment. Uh, I guess that's a result of climate change and and, uh, workplaces and and construction sites being hotter um, during construction season. Um, So, uh, Ahmed, I'll go back to you on, like, Do you gather data on heat around project sites? Can you maybe give us a little more insight as to what data sets um, most of uh, the construction and infrastructure industry are working with?
2: Yeah, good question. Uh, I wanted to maybe back it up a little bit, too, just based on some of the comments that were made. I mean, the ideal world is all this data exists, all the systems work together, and all the systems can talk to each other. What we found was that uh, there's there's a lot of data that already exists. It's just not connected, it's not, it's varied and siloed, thousands of disparate sources, thousands of different formats, you know, being one element of it. And where we saw an opportunity for, uh, you know, software tools and technology was to how do you use these algorithms to pull all that data together so the industry can start making some better decisions around what's going on in the infrastructure market and uh, where the issues are, what is going to be spent, what needs to be spent. So our approach was more, how do we make more, how do we make more use the data that already exists and and leverage that as a starting point and then start looking at how do we find more data sources to plug into the system so because i do think that there's a lot of it that already exists that can be and that is true across for a lot of companies
1: so, so John, on the data side, are you like obviously you're uh, asset management uh, friendly because um, I know Melissa um, Osborne of your of your group, uh, who's the asset manager there, and, and Anna comes from asset management. I think where where Ahmed is going is is this data is part of your asset management tool, like condition assessment and life cycle. So, are you integrating that into some of your platforms? Yeah, your absolutely,
5: Todd. And and I'll even throw out an example of one of the things we're trying to work towards in the future is. Uh, even with the fire department. Uh, we had an issue in Windsor where we had a building that caught on fire and the fire department responded and they put firefighters in an underground space uh, that was actually structurally compromised. And the fire chief made the comment afterwards that he wished he had had uh, quick access to drawings for that building because he would have never put his firefighter. So it speaks to Ahmed's point about uh, data and having it accessible quickly. Uh, if this is cloud-based uh, and it's something we can provide to the fire department uh their first responders in road could be bringing it up on a on a tablet and looking at uh, structural drawings
1: good 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 analysis So, so Richard, I mean uh, there's been a few comments I'm sure you've got you've got something to say about each one of them
4: well, absolutely i mean there's there's so many different potential and real benefits that can be derived from this, uh, not the least of which one of the things that we were looking at was a research project utilizing drones and sensors, where on any given day, you would have an up-to-date set of as-built drawings as a project is progressing, uh, which uh, for those in the industry who know that sometimes uh, you might not get as-built drawings at the end of the day, or it can take some time. But, you know, these things have safety, uh, there are safety considerations too. And that's a really great example uh, with respect to the firefighters. And, you know, the other thing is just efficiencies and, you know, some good things for the environment just at a very practical level. You you won't have that problem of losing drawings anymore, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, And you can actually trigger reviews, uh, simultaneous reviews rather than linear chicken and egg games and things like that. Uh, that that can occur, and then you know we spend millions, hundreds of millions of dollars every year reproducing drawings. Many of which end up in a in a big bin. They never get really used, but we're reproducing tons of paper. It's it's really all unnecessary. So, but the question is, how do you get there, and how do you move things along, and? Part of that, and I somebody mentioned it, is uh, where where's the incentive, or the or is there a lack of incentive for certain parties not to proceed because there really is no consequence if you make things better or not, so that can really have a chilling effect. And then there's of course the fear factor. One of the interesting things in Finland was, in in uh, in their experience there. There was a fear factor on the part of staff, you know, that their jobs were going to change and so on and so forth. But what they found out afterwards is that the technology enabled eliminating some of the drudgery in their work. And so they could actually spend their time looking at more interesting things and doing more interesting work. So it actually uh, had a, a positive effect there from an HR perspective.
1: Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, drone technology and sensors. That was kind of one of my questions. Uh, my my cousin is in construction, and he was telling me that uh, there's actually barcodes on construction workers' top of their helmets, and there is. Uh, cameras um, and sensor technology on the cranes so you can tell where everybody is on the job site at any time to really kind of not only keep track from health and safety point of view but also make sure that people are in the right places at the right time doing the right things for construction efficiency. Um, I was I was blown away I didn't realize that that technology had advanced to that point so uh, I'm curious if, if that's actually something that's used on most projects maybe Anna Um, you can chat to that from a WSP perspective. I'm not sure if that, that sensor and drone technology is truly being used on sites.
3: Yeah. I don't know that it's being used on most projects, but that is a, you know, that's a really good one. And it just made me think of all these others that, um, there's a, a particular niche when we looked at all the different types of technologies on a construction site and the kind of impact that they had for the productivity of that site and, you know, the, the construction timeline as well as costs. And real-time location systems, uh, you know, cameras, RFID, all those. So I, I assume the drones and sensors would come into that as well. Um, they can save up to 60% of labor costs. They can they, they can cut a construction timeline by about 30% just with that real-time location system piece. So it's it's super impressive, and the you know, the potential for that and more technology like that is, is huge. I also I mean, the safety point is really important. And when you mentioned the, you know, there's, I guess, keeping staff safe even before they get onto the construction site, training them through uh, an augmented or virtual reality environment before they even get there has massive potential as well to just, you know, it's not just productivity, but it's worker safety, comfort, Um, their feeling as they even move around the site, they're already ready for it. So those are the kind of technologies that I've seen at least reported on quite a lot. And, um, and that, that's the kind of result that you're seeing from them.
1: So, so Ahmed, all this data is being captured. Uh, we've got cloud-based systems that are chewing up terabytes of data. How, how are you mining that? What do you, what do you do with that? And can you turn it into something that other people can use?
2: Yeah, good question. So, and I wanted to build also what Anna was saying, uh, you know, one of the, sometimes the challenges that the, individuals in the organization making the decisions about, uh, these are, are different from the ones at, at the end of the using it. And that sometimes creates some adoption challenges as well. So I think one thing that's important is understanding that user workflow, like what do people do today and uh, beyond the, the there's going to be the business or organizational benefits, but also for that person, at the yeah, they of using the data, the platform, how is it going to improve their workflows and how's it going to, how are they going to be able to do more interesting things with the data? So, um, so I think that's always uh, something uh, to overcome early on. And it just requires understanding what exact data point is going to be useful to, for them to make a certain decision or a certain action. In terms of how we're mining it, uh, uh, our data, our I mean, our approach is a little different. We're looking at, uh, from 31,000 cities and utilities, any public sources, public data sets, uh, public documents, government, uh, state level, county level, provincial level data sets, Anything in that public domain that's already being created by public sector, but it's not fully utilized uh, for by the industry. And what our goal is connecting it all into our centralized platform uh, and how we use it. We've got, you know, some web product technology, some data scraping technology, data ingestion technologies. Uh, and the other challenge is how do you normalize it? Because provinces might have different units for different things that they measure. So creating some standardization uh, around that, and then normalizing in a way that we can do some more apples to apples benchmarks, and then creating that interface for users uh, based on what they're looking for. And everyone has a slightly different, call it slice of data they're looking for. Uh, you know, what one company cares about is very different from other companies to care about. So it's a matter of understanding, you know, one element of this pulling data together in the platform, but also how is it going to be used and what's the best way? Because you don't want to overwhelm the users too, with like all kinds mm-hmm. of data. You want to give them something simple that is powerful that uh, enables them to do something that they couldn't do themselves uh, easily before.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, you have lots of data, but if you don't use it, it's uh, it's
2: it's, yeah, it's, gonna it's gonna just, just numbers, up. right? Yeah, it's, it's numbers. Number. At the end of it.
1: um, I'm going to get into one of the questions we have here now, which is uh, a good one, I think. It goes back to maybe a little bit of the political influence around what we're trying to achieve with digitization of uh, the industry. Uh, What government regulations and policies would effectively support and expedite the adoption of digital solutions and smart solutions for the construction industry? In other words, is the government at all levels supporting this trend? And maybe start with you, Richard, because Rescon, I know, is a a pretty powerful uh, lobbying um, organization in Ontario.
4: Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, first uh, I'll say I I was very pleased uh, and we were very happy about the government of Ontario announcing that there is now a minister responsible for data and digitization. And uh, that was uh, the same person as the president of Treasury Board, who is now our Minister of Finance. So, uh, but, you know, the good news there is that uh, with that coming from that source said to us that the government's serious about uh, uh, doing things here. And and there's a lot that can be done. Um, And they've established some programs. I think there's a big learning curve here because uh, you've got um, a lot of people that, um, you know, for example, that think, yeah, we do e-permitting. You know, for example, we can accept uh, uh, applications by email. Well, you know, that's not e-permitting. And, and sometimes the, you, you've you got different people at different levels of knowledge here, and I'm not making fun of anybody. It's just the reality of it. So yeah. I think there's some pretty mandatory things that should happen. Um, and then when you're talking about linking all these different, uh, creating the platform so you can link all these different entities together so they can exchange and share data in a secure way is is critical. But you know, there's some very good models out there. I, I uh, you know, the uh, uh, Estonian uh, digital identity model, and I don't know if anybody read that, but Estonia, 97% of all the interaction between the public and, and government is online. So when COVID hit, they really, they didn't skip a beat. And, uh, and you know, it we can do that as well, too. There's no reason for it. It's just a matter of time, effort, uh, commitment, uh, and training, you know, and, and pulling that together.
1: So, so John, over to you. I mean, uh, you're with the municipality. Um, what do you see the, the role of uh, your level of government in terms of driving this process?
5: So it's uh, maybe back to one of the comments that Anna made earlier. It, it requires some championing um, because at the municipal level, you're, you're working with a, a group of individuals who don't all have the same understanding. Uh, of what the benefits are, and you're, you're competing uh, against other priorities. So it's, it's a matter of putting together a group of people who, uh, you can, un- who can understand what it is and can advocate for uh, so that the political leadership is willing to make the investment. City of Windsor has spent, we're, we're in the range of around $2 million so far uh, to transition to an electronic system It's a tremendous amount of work uh, and it's involved a number of different departments. Right now we've got our IT department, our planning department and our public works uh, division working together with building to put together this very robust platform for all all of the users. I will say more at a uh, province-wide scale, though one of the greatest hurdles we have is, uh, is identifying people. We don't have a uniform identification system for individuals. And that's one of the advantages that Finland had. They have a, uh, they use their banking system uh, for identifying individuals. So you have, a, have an account number for each individual. And it doesn't matter who you bank with in Finland, you use the same account number and it's tracked by the government. So it was very easy for them to identify individuals so that you can have people participating who are appropriate to be participating or have access to the information and data uh, in the cloud system. We don't have that advantage here in Ontario. It's, it's very fragmented. Uh, and there's, there's no uniform system. So it's, uh, that's one of the great challenges identifying individuals. Hmm.
1: So, so the government's role is, is really to try to pull together those disparate uh, silos of, of not only data sets, but uh, policy. So um, yeah. Anna and Ahmed, any comments on how governments can help drive the digitization of the construction
2: industry?
3: Yeah. If you don't mind, if sure. I start, um, <laughs> um, yeah, there's, um, for sure there's the procurement side, right. Um, make sure that procurement allows innovation and doesn't just go all cost first, uh, in the short term, because when you tend to do this life cycle costing as much as we like to take it into account, what's happening in the future, we just, you know, it gets so small with the discount rate. Right. So, um, that's and plus it's you often don't have the same end user that is building the thing in the first place or developing the building in the first place and so a policy there that would require procurement or allow procurement to be more flexible less specification less prescription based um that would allow new players to come into the market um do things a little bit differently allows a little bit of risk and That all sounds pretty crazy, I suppose. Um, The other piece that the government's starting to do, I'm seeing in pockets, is supporting pilot projects. Um, Pilot projects, there's nothing like a pilot project to get things moving. Um, In the research that I've seen on what makes people adopt something new every single time, whether it's purchasing a green product, allowing your private data to be used. recommending a new drug for your patients. Every single time, the person that has made the decision has looked at what someone else has done. So the pilot project gives that first instance of somebody doing something and showing it being successful or not, and the lessons learned that come from it. So I think those are two of the biggest things that government could support. Um, And I'm just going to go back, though, to the lifecycle piece, because a policy that allows us to internalize externalities and when i say externalities i'm back to the whole concept of somebody builds something but someone else is going to incur the cost of that things if they're if they're passing it on someone builds something now but the future stuff that happens just seems really small to us and so that becomes a kind of externality too so if there's a policy that brings that all together into the now into the i'm going to do something that's going to impact somebody else but let me pay for it. You know, let me let that be part of the whole package up front. That's the kind of policy that I think would support.
2: Hmm. All right. Yeah, I was actually going to say the second point Anna brought up, which is piloting. Uh, because when you think about any transformative technology, uh, GPS, internet, it all started with some public sector government applications where governments were uh, wanting to try it out, wanting to use it. They're a bit more hands-on with it. And then the learnings from that Then became much more widely uh, available, accessible to other industries as well. So uh, more maybe hands-on piloting of different technologies and uh, and and sharing those learnings, I think, is going to help uh, uh, accelerate this adoption.
1: Yeah. So so nobody wants to be the first mover on these things, right? Everybody wants to be able to point to an example where it's worked before, so that uh, you don't look silly being the the first one that tried and, and fell on your face with, with that of our technology adoption. And so, you know, kudos to John, you and the city for adopting the volta system and and moving to cloud permitting. But maybe Richard, you can tell us a little bit more about pilots. And I think this is a good area to talk about, like who's doing some really cool stuff beyond the city of Windsor, obviously who else is doing good things with adopting uh, technology in the construction
4: sector Wow. Well, that's, that's a, uh, a, uh... A big question. I'm not sure exactly where to start on that. Um, I I was going to say one thing that, uh, depending on the jurisdiction and how things work, um, like, for example, in Ontario, you know, we brought in an Ontario building code in 1975 to create a, a common understanding between all the 400, uh, probably closer to 500 municipalities or 600. Now, I think there's 444 in the province that they all work off the same system. And I think that with uh, digital uh, uh, digitization, digital platforms and so on, we need that same level of engagement um, uh, because uh, you can avoid, for example, municipalities uh, uh, doing different things at different levels and spending money on consultants to actually create a, a data exchange capabilities that are, you know, one-off jobs and we can actually sort of do that. So I think, you know, we don't have a ministry of construction, but what we could really use is uh, some kind of established uh, cooperative venture involving government and industry and and the design community to oversee this transition uh, because there's so many moving parts to it, but at the same time, it's so important uh, you know, we ran some big data analytics using agent-based modeling, looking at what it would mean if we streamline the approvals process for a period of time. What that would mean with respect to the supply of housing, and the numbers were astounding. We also looked at what it would mean for tax revenues for government, because you know the development industry actually, it's not very high on the list of popular entities in the world, right? So. Uh, we looked at that, too, to, to see. And, of course, you know, it, it came together. You get a lot more housing. Uh, governments get more revenues. Uh, people live better. I mean, what's wrong with that? So uh, we're seeing different levels. Uh, obviously, bigger organizations uh, are more attuned to all this stuff. Uh, part of our UFT engineering um, Collaboration is now an annual BIM survey in Canada that's performed. I think we just did the third one. So it's showing a progressive increase uh, uh, um, with respect to different entities at different levels of sophistication. So, you know, architects are typically way up there. Then you get the engineers. Don't tell them I said that. Uh, <laughs> and then you have, uh, you, you then get into government bodies and industry. And, you know, there's a push-pull effect here, too. This is why things like BIM mandates are so important, because government really needs to say, okay, we expect you to get here by this time, right? You must do this. Uh, or else it'll be, well, I'm not going to do it because the government doesn't require it, require it. And then government's saying, well, I'm not going to ask them for this because they can't do it, Right. Uh, that kind of thing, and then you have the, you know, smaller players where the adjustment, you can't sort of assign a team to do the digitization work. It's like, who's going to do this, and it's, well, we don't know, so, but it's really, uh, I think uh, somebody mentioned top-down. This is this is one of these top-down uh, things uh, to really bring it together. That doesn't mean to say that you can't have the forerunners like the city of Windsor uh, that really got ahead of this, and they were very incredibly brave about it. I mean, it was really quite astounding uh, and admirable that uh, the city undertook this challenge and has, uh, you know, gotten to the point where there are other municipalities are now starting to follow. But we really do need that that uh, that global uh, uh, positioning on this from uh, the senior levels of government and uh, even the federal government too
1: so that kind of speaks to what i was saying with uh, procurement right you really need somebody at the at the at that level to say if you don't uh, adhere to these uh, digital uh, permitting all these other standards or technology uh, pieces then you don't qualify for the job i think maybe We need to be a little more strict with procurement so those costs can be built in. So, you know, when WSP goes in with a future ready kind of proposal, uh, but yet another consultant who says, well, we're not really doing that technology stuff because our team doesn't know about it, um, they have the end up with the low bid. Um, So how do we avoid uh, that low bid ethos um, due to these increase in costs for data and, and the analytics and software? So. I don't know, Anna, have you encountered that? Or Richard, maybe you want to go first with that?
4: I I was just going to say just very quickly that, yes, there are costs associated to change, but then there are benefits with the change that reduce costs. So, you know, where that, you know, uh, balances out at what point in time, uh, that's for brighter minds than me to contemplate. But I'll look to uh, WSSP for (laughs) guidance there. But anyways, you know. Go ahead. Yeah,
3: no. yeah, well, it's, it is true. It, it's in the future, right? If it's not right now. And in fact, even if it's right now, and people haven't seen it work before, and they're not sure it's going to work, then it just it's too uncomfortable. And if it's in the future, um, we do have our, you know, there's the economics discounts rates, but then just people have different discount rates, There's are ridiculously high, something that looks like a benefit cost of 10 to one economically, they see it as less than one to one, because, you know, they just see the value Tomorrow's dollar is fifty cents, as far as they're concerned, because it's so far away. So that is a big challenge for sure.
1: I'm going to jump into our polls now. So let's let's start at the at the top. So the biggest barrier preventing technology adoption looks like um, lack of knowledge. So um, there you go, Ahmed. Uh, big can big group of people who need more data so that they have mm-hmm. access to the knowledge. Um, so lack of knowledge, lack of information could maybe be perceived as the same thing. Fear of change, we talked about that before too. Um, how do you adopt um, and the, the people factor, right? So that that's interesting. How do you how often do you use construction apps? Um, broad question, and I guess it's do we go to engineers and architects, or are we going to, you know, the construction frontline workers? Um, looks like hardly ever as most of the people in this group, but Richard quickly on this one, I mean, when you're on a construction site, are, are the contractors, are they on their phones checking apps for stuff or using technology live on site?
4: Yeah, and there's various levels of sophistication in that regard too, as well. So it depends on the company, it depends on the project. Uh, we've got companies that have capabilities that far exceed anything that's being used currently. Uh, plus, it's uh, can be hard for some companies. Uh, the trades, uh, you know, I mentioned the the builders being at one level, architects, engineers, builders, and then then your trades are usually further down that list. So um, you know, it's it's funny you have. You, I, I know of companies and suppliers uh, uh, in the design world that have uh, fully BIM capabilities, but their clients don't require it, so they don't use it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, to get onto a, a complete BIM platform, you've got to, you know, everyone's got to be on, on, on and familiar with and knows how to work with that whole process so that, for example... If you have uh, change orders and things like that, that that automatically run through the entire system seamlessly, which is pretty slick, you know, we're, we're not there yet, um, so it depends. You know, we looked at it with respect to COVID. How do we, you know, tracking uh, uh, for safety purposes and this kind of thing, knowing where people are, you know, there's and then you get into some privacy considerations, which are interesting and you know, people don't want to be tracked. They don't want to sign up. They don't want to, you know, whatever. So, you know, we've got some issues there too to deal with as well. So it's it's a bit of a, a bit of a dog's breakfast right now in terms of yeah, uh, we're,
1: we're getting there though, and more and more people yeah. are, are using it. And I think you know, um, our pandemic has forced us all to be a little bit more digital savvy. <laughs> so uh, the next question on our poll was, "Are you making the most of data you collect?" Um, I think some people are probably embellishing the truth when they say, yes, we use it to make informed decisions every day. Cause I don't know if that's the, you know, the the reality on the ground um, is somewhere probably in the, in the, the two lower answers, but uh, I mean, I'm going to give you a chance. Like, uh, are you seeing that with some of your clients? Are they actually using the, the data?
2: Yeah, I guess that Richard's point. There's levels of sophistication as well. Right. right. So there's a, uh... There may be some maybe surface level data that they're that they're using at a high level because at the end of the day I mean there will be some levels, but then the other factor might be the granularity of the data. Like do they have the granularity that they need to, to make much more much more intelligent decisions? That could be, you know, the, the question here. But you know, in today's world, I think most people are aware, like they can't ignore data, they can't ignore digital. Uh, and uh, they're looking for uh, smarter ways to use it and, and they're probably using it in some form of spreadsheets and whatnot, but is it truly data pipelines, data streams, a real-time predicted AI? That's, uh, that's that. I don't think it's quite there yet. Yeah, I just,
3: if I can um, hop onto that one. We've had our, some of our teams do these technology mapping exercises. It might be around a municipality, for example, and it's just striking every time one department will not know about the technology another department has and the potential for that technology to grab data that will be useful to them. Uh, it's just it's been eye opening every single time. So I do agree. I think a lot of municipalities for sure are using so much technology, but there's also bigger potential for them to use it even better.
1: To, to have it integrated because they're using that technology in silos. Uh, and and you know that as a, as an asset manager, um, I see that too in our role with, with asset management and, and reporting on it, is you'll have engineering that does their set of, of data, and then you've got accounting with their set of data, and then you've got the public works of people who have got their own sort of pieces, and they're not integrated and, and combined. so. Um, that's, that's fascinating. So next poll question what what areas of artificial intelligence and machine learning interest you the most. So AI for better design of buildings. Um, I, I, I don't know how much AI we're we're using right now but I, I think uh, um, maybe it was Anna or Richard you mentioned uh, virtual reality to get people trained on before they go on site I thought that was. That was great. Um, It's not really artificial intelligence, but. Well,
3: there's um, a really lovely example at the University of Waterloo has done this, and I suspect others have done it since. But using cameras and AI to watch what older workers, older tradespeople, how they move their bodies, because in all of their years of experience, they've learned how to move their bodies in a way that prevents injury or keeps them safe and healthy Um, It's something they would not be able to explain to anyone else. But with this AI and these cameras, they're able to monitor that movement and then train younger workers to move in a safer way. So it's a really fascinating use of direct application to construction and again around keeping workers healthy, safe and then productive as well.
1: So so when my grandfather told me to lift with your legs, uh, now that's become an AI thing.
3: <laughs> I don't know. You'd have to see. Maybe he's wrong.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Richard, am I wrong? Are you supposed to lift with your legs? You're not supposed to lift with your back, right?
4: Yeah. Well, your grandfather told you that, but what he didn't tell you was he got someone else to do the heavy lifting for. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think
1: we're, we're moving along with, with AI here. Um,
4: uh, you know, one thing. I was going to say just quickly, Todd, because uh, I was just in a in a simu- in a, a simulator room yesterday, of all things, uh, with respect to a training program. So the potential here with with all this technology and AI is uh, is 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 learning, and it's also it's a feedback loop into simulation too. So, you know, the the data, the 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 benefits and the promise of data and the proper use of data. Is the capacity to simulate projects uh, quickly and to change them, and then to run the run the apps on uh, you know carb, carbon effect, uh, climate change issues, uh, building envelope. You know, you you can recalibrate the energy performance of structures almost instantly. Say in a residential concept uh, um, uh, situation, uh, but then also in training too so simulators for training of different works like for example you know we're trying to get young people into uh, into the skill trades well you've got these guidance departments in high schools i can see a day when you, when when a kid would be able to go into the guidance department of high school sit down or stand up it'd be like ready player one put on the helmet get on the unidirectional platform and he could actually she he or she could actually walk through different job sites that are for all intents and purposes you know, real, uh, and, and they would be, they would be actual, uh, simulations and, and get some exposure that way. Because of course we know experiential learning is, is, uh, so critical. That's not going to get you all the way there, but that could get you 80 or 90% of the way there. So technologies like that, these can change, uh, uh, so many different things. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Good. Good. Um, the final good. poll question was, uh, and it's a pretty obvious one of the surprises of 22% said no to this was in light of uh, the pandemic, has your company adopted new technology to drive efficiencies? Um, and 80, almost 80% said yes, but there are still some people who say no. So it goes back to, to those adoption patterns and who's adopting it and are there champions at the higher level, both in the organization and the government, who are driving that top down approach to get more people to lift it up in that technology side. Um, We only have a few minutes left, so I thought what I'd do is I'd go around, um, give everybody a a chance to answer this one uh, big question. Uh, What does the future look like, Uh, you know, 5, 10, 15 years from now? Uh, As a preamble to that, uh, I don't know if you've seen the Netflix series called Alien Planets, but episode four, it talks about way in the future, robots are building our infrastructure and Hmm. I'll just start with you, Ahmed. or maybe why don't we do with the opposite direction? John, we'll go with you first. What's the future of uh, of construction?
5: Yeah, so I, I think um, you're in the right vein. It, it probably will evolve in ways we haven't even begun to imagine. I've seen uh, video clips of, of 3D printing of buildings. Like that, that's possibly a, a future uh, direction that we could be going in. So certainly, data collection. Uh, having more perfect information and bringing all of the appropriate people together so they can work collaboratively. uh, It helps us envision what could be in the future. So I I think that there's, uh, there's unimagined directions that we could be going in.
4: Good. Richard? You know, uh, one of the one of the great challenges right now is that the technology is evolving faster than our capability of keeping up with it. And so we're getting a disconnect now. And unfortunately, uh, and this is a juggernaut, it is going to roll. Right. And necessity is going to drive change more than enlightened uh, thinking, because all of a sudden we're going to realize, well, we're light years, we're 10 years or 15 years behind some other jurisdiction that we're trying to compete with, that's not gonna work. The sad thing here to a certain extent is some people are gonna get left behind in this world. Um, the promise and the opportunities are fantastic for uh, better designed buildings. Uh, this is, uh, is gonna be critical to manage climate change and not just with respect to new buildings, but retrofitting old buildings, the technology that can be applied now and that is developing is going to really facilitate how to how to transform some of our existing structures into more climate friendly uh, buildings because that's 98 99% of our built environment is the existing stuff you know we can make all these changes to the new stuff so the promise is fantastic the challenges are great there does need to be some top down uh, drivers here we do need a bim mandate we need things like you know, Todd. I know you know this mass timber, most climate-friendly thing going. We should have a mass timber mandate, right? I mean, things like that to drive that. Okay. Mandating off-site construction, you get a okay. better product.
1: Yeah, we need we need more of all of those, Anna, and uh, then we'll go. We'll let give final word to Ahmed before we wrap up today.
3: All right. I um, I'm gonna sound less exciting probably, but I think the future. This is aspirational is that all organizations have a policy of piloting, of trying out new um, technologies, of collaborating with each other, of gathering an evidence base so that they know what's gonna work and what's not and sharing that with each other, but also that they have roles and responsibilities assigned to those things. You know, Somebody has to go out and make those collaborations and, and meet those other organizations that have similar aspirations to them or similar desires to them. So that's um that's the direction that I'd head in. And if you as an individual are going, man, this is you know there's so many solutions here. It's all very hard. I think that first step is, does your organization have a policy for these things that you think are important? That would be my first step.
2: On it, what's the future look like? Yeah, I'll say uh, I, I'm optimistic. I'd be like most of the companies we work with in the construction space. Everyone's uh, trying to figure out what to do with data, what to do with digital, how can be to their businesses. I think we'll create, like um, John said, unimaginable ways of of being much more efficient about how we do business, how we create infrastructure. And I think uh, it's exciting, the future is
3: exciting.
1: Yes, it is, and and we're gonna adopt as quickly as we humanly can, (laughs) Uh, because I think to Richard's point, things are gonna happen a lot faster than we can absorb. So thank you again, all of our panelists, and thank you to Citylytics for sponsoring this. Uh, CityLytics is providing lots of data intelligence, so go to their website and learn more about how you can use data in your organization. Thank you again, everybody. Thank you to the panelists and CityLytics, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.
0: Infraintelligence podcasts are adapted from an ongoing webinar series hosted by Renew Canada magazine. You can find out more by following Renew Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn, or by visiting RenewCanada.net.